Hey, fantastic fans. I don't have to tell you that you probably feel the most invincible on a tennis court when your mind and racket are completely in sync. I can't exactly help you with your mind today, but I do have the racket brand for you. I haven't really shared this at all, but my vocal tennis racket literally rescued me six years ago when I was at my most vulnerable on court. I'd played with a well-known racket my entire life and my game was at a complete standstill before I tried the vocal C10 Pro. It was almost like a cheesy scene in a movie. You know, that's how in love I felt the first time I hit with my vocal. Vocal supported me with finding my new perfect fit with their highest quality collection of rackets and strings and top of the line materials that ultimately helped me find my game again. I demoed my vocals right from my neighborhood tennis shop, or you can even jump online right now and visit their online store at www.vocaltennis.com. That's www.volklts.com and experience how vocal will make a difference in your game. Check out their arsenal of rackets, strings, and brand new clothing line today and receive 10% off your next purchase by using the discount code FANTASTIC10. Join me in the vocal family and trust me when I say they're pretty fantastic. Hey, fantastic fans, listen up because I'm about to make your holiday season so much easier. I was searching online and I typed in fantastic tennis gifts as one does. And the Google gods shined brightly down on my search as I discovered an online store full of fun, inexpensive gifts that you must go check out right now. www.racketinc.com. That's www.racquetinc.com. They have everything you need for your tennis playing husband, sister, doubles partner, USTA teammate, doorman, you name it. I ended up buying a bunch of the coolest antique racket wine bottle openers for stocking stuffers this year. Never seen anything like it. I even picked up a pickleball court mouse pad for my boss because he's convinced he's a pickleball world champion after playing four times, so he'll love it. <laughs> you won't be sorry. Check out RacketInc.com and their Instagram page, Racket Inc., today for the most unique tennis gifts this holiday season. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. I mean, they always have a big mouth. They always talk a lot. So <laughs> it happened before, it's going to happen again. Our special guest this week is so much more than a talented WTA fan favorite that oofdad her way up the world rankings to become the first German female since Steffi Graf in 1999 to break inside the world's top 10. She's a one-of-a-kind, music-loving, forehand-thumping brainiac that's kept tennis fans dancing and cheering the name Petko ever since her debut match in Hamburg as a wildcard back in 2002. Born in Tuzla, Bosnia, she was raised in her adoptive country of Germany, where she'd quickly establish herself among the best, in a country that's no stranger to tennis superstars. She'd win her first WTA title on the red clay of Badgestein, Austria in 2009, and she'd continue to excel in the clay throughout her long career, most notably an exciting 2014 French Open run that took her all the way to the semifinals. With wins over former number ones like Venus Williams, Maria Sharapova, Naomi Osaka, Simona Halep, and Victoria Azarenka, she'd prove to be a player whose grit and mental toughness would consistently defeat the world's best. And oh, did fans love when she did, as the infamous Petco dance would be something crowds would chant after each hard-fought victory. 
2021 would be a triumphant comeback year from knee surgery for Team Petkarazzi, as she'd win her first WTA doubles title with Kveta Peshki in Chicago, and then capture singles title number seven at the Winners Open in Romania to add to her long resume of on-court accomplishments. She made a quick goodbye to the tour just this past year, as she announced that the 2022 US Open would be her hashtag last dance, for now at least. Off court, she continues to thrive in the land of unemployment. She's a critically acclaimed author, columnist, and in 2020, she released her critically acclaimed book, Between Fame and Honor Lies the Night. She's a book club creator, a television commentator, a karaoke queen, the greatest model Adidas has ever seen, and she's someone I personally grew to know and can attest she's as cool and as kind as they come. Our guest this week is the fantastiche Andrea Petkovic. Andy, what's up? Yay! <laughs> <laughs> what an introduction, man. Wow. Uh, hello, my friend. Uh, already done. That's, this is a wrap. This is a wrap. This is my life in a nutshell. Definitely not. We have so much to talk about. Wie geht's? How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm at home in Darmstadt in Germany. It's a small city close to Frankfurt and I'm living my best unemployed life, which means I can have wine at noon and water at night, whatever I, whatever I fancy. It's five o'clock somewhere at least, you know, <laughs> unemployment suits you very well, by the way. I mean, it's actually a joke because you're busier now than ever. It seems like, I mean, you're interviewing authors, you're raising money for nonprofits, you're on late night talk shows. It's the new Pekovic era, at least, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a little bit weird. Yeah, I thought, oh, finally, I'll get some time to do all the things I always wanted to do. And But in the back of my mind, I was a little bit afraid of this big black hole that tennis will leave. And so I just said yes to anything. It was the time of yeses for me. And, uh, and then I found myself in retirement, but having the busiest daily schedule ever because in tennis every day is kind of the same and you have the matches and it's very mentally stressful but there is not a lot to do especially as an older tennis player when you uh, when you train a little less my days were much shorter I always try to compress everything into into the morning and do most of it before 2 or 3 p.m be done by 2 or 3 p.m so I had enough time to recover with 35 those things are very important so yeah now the new life is different you have a thing at 9 and a thing at 12 and then you have to be there at the, so you know it's it's real life I guess it's not the fantasy world of tennis anymore but but I'm having fun oh I'm so glad you said yes I mean you're here today yeah. so I'm excited. Uh, I have to say before we start today's show, and for those that don't do sappy, you can turn the volume down for like a minute, okay? Because uh, I'm going to go there for a second. Because today's pretty special for me because I've been a huge fan of your tennis for as long as I can remember. And I always thought you were like the cool chick of the WTA. You know, you and Yelena Yankovic and Svetlana Kuznetsova, you're running like some speakeasy. You know, you're the cool chicks. <laughs> So it was definitely nice for me when Renee Stubbs introduced us back in 2018 and you and I became sort of kind of pen pals for a little bit. Besties. Yeah, besties. <laughs> and I actually got to know you. And ever since that year in 2018, I've been courtside cheering you on and really just being so excited for some of these hard fought victories that you had. Matches against Sloane Stevens and Petra Kvitova and Sue Shea and Begu and Zhang and all these great wins. And... Now that you're at peace, and I hope you're at peace right now, and we're going to talk about it later, and you've officially moved on to life after tennis, I just want to say publicly thank you 
not just for the amazing tickets to all these great matches that I got to have, but um, thank you for bringing something unique and layered and very special to the game. And I'll speak for tennis fans everywhere just for a moment when I say there will never be a player like you ever again. So thank you, Andre Pekovic. (laughs) You're flattering me, but I also have to mention that in all these years that we were besties, every single time when I invited you to a tournament, I still had to ask you to spell out your last name. (laughs) Because it is, in my defense, it is maybe the most complicated last name of all last names in the history of last names. What is up with that? And I felt so embarrassed. I'm like, I know a lot about this guy. I consider him a friend. I know who he's going to marry. I know this. I know I know like private stuff. And yet I still cannot spell his last name. This is embarrassing for all. I mean, it's 18 letters. It's not it's a very crazy name. So it's okay. You get a pass. You get a pass, Petrovic. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and I'm really oh, good man. at spelling. I'm so good at spelling that Americans and English people ask me how to spell words in English and American. So <laughs> Um, this is not this is not a weakness of my anomaly, but here I am. I got to know my limits in spelling. I mean, if I have a lifeline on a game show, I'm calling you, no matter what it is. I mean, that's it. <laughs> I mean, it's you. You're the brainiac of the WTA tour. Well, I didn't want to kick us off with so much damn mush, but I had to get that out of the way. So I, you know, I all the warm and fuzzies are out. Anyone who turned their volume down can turn it back up now. So let's get this show started because your career, as I mentioned is iconic. And the amount of fan questions I received today for the show was a record for me. (laughs) So I can't wait to jump into the life and career of our broccoli queen, Andrea Pekovic. Really quick, I know you retired just, you know, a few, you know, a month ago, and you were just beating top 10 players almost at the US Open. That 6-4 in the third we're going to talk about later. But um, speaking of Yelena Yankovic, I did wonder what your thoughts were about this recent Luxembourg Legends event that went down with him and Hingis and Gerges and Radwanska, all the fan favorites. Yeah, it was a four day event, 40k euro to the winner. Would you consider playing events like this in the future? Is this uh, is this where we'll see you maybe? Or is it too early to talk about? Oh, I mean, you, you know, as a tennis fan, this was such an exciting event to me because it was all the players that I loved. I mean, either from a friend perspective, like Julia Gagas, who is a good friend of mine. I just wanted to see her again out in the out there in the wild playing tennis. <laughs> I mean, JJ, obviously, she is the queen of queens. Radvanska, one player that I never got to beat. Every match we played was three hours. I lost seven, six in the third, six, four in the third. She was just that one wall I couldn't breach. And I had, I beat so many good players, but she was just the wall I couldn't breach. Um, So it was so exciting for me. Right now, in this moment, if you'd asked me, I couldn't. Uh, One reason also why I retired is just my elbow has been terrible for a long time and my knee. So um, I'm still waiting for uh, the slowest recovery time of my body ever to sort of guide me through the rehab process of getting rid of all these little inflammations that we collect over the the course of a professional athlete's life. So once this resides, I feel like I could see myself playing again because I still loved playing. I still loved practicing. I still love playing matches. That was not the issue at all. It was really my body. And I honestly, the minute my elbow is better, I will play at least two times a week, if just for an hour to feel it. And as I said, I just enjoy it. It it was my job for such a long time, but it's also, um, it's also my hobby for sure. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, if I'm your agent, even despite the elbow, I'm going to say, you know, I like your chances. I'll take the 40,000 euro, right? <laughs> right. Now that you're unemployed, you got to look for new, uh, new places of earning, right? right? I'm trying to help you out. <laughs> I had original nine member Rosie Casals on the show recently, and we talked about how she played on the Virginia Slims Legends Tour back in the early 90s after she retired. Has women's tennis grown enough in popularity to sustain more events like Luxembourg in the future, you think? I do think so. I always feel like, I mean, in my ideal world, in my opinion, the best product we would have as tennis players if we would mix up everything. You know, I strongly believe in women's tennis. I believe in it much more than in men's tennis, looking at the future of players, although now with Carlos Alcaraz and Yannick Sinner, things have shifted a little bit. But for a long time, I felt like the WTA had uh, many more bright, shining future stars that were able to cross over into pop culture, which really what it's all about, because the common tennis fan will come to tennis events because he's a fan. But we have to get to the people who heard of tennis, like it, don't know if they want to come to an event. And, uh, and for these people to reach these people, we need players like Naomi Osaka, like obviously both William sisters, the uh, Rogers and Rafa's of the tennis who really breach into pop culture. And I saw that more on the WTA tour and on the men's tour up until recently, maybe a year ago or so. But putting this aside, overall, I do think that the best for any kind of tennis event would always be to have both there. Because I personally don't know any fan that prefers one over the other. Tennis fans are just tennis fans and they have faves. And in my mind, it's always like, super random faves that really speak of the personality as well you know there is somebody who likes like i like bethany maddox sands and yannick sinner then the other totally. one like, i like roger <laughs> and sloan stevens so it's like these random faves that we just have because we saw that one match or we saw that one yeah. emotion the one interview that caught us and so i do think that tennis really has to make an effort to give as many chances as possible to the audience to see as many players as possible. I absolutely agree, for sure. I think what she's saying is we all need to invest some money into the Legends Tour. So if, you know, reach into <laughs> your pockets, let's do it. It sounds like fun. Unless you're saving your money uh, to invest in a pro pickleball team like Kim Kleister's. I don't know. Oh my God. No. <laughs> Caitlin Thompson would not be happy. Caitlin would not be happy if we do that right now. I'll just tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> she would not be happy, but, you know, it's like, I feel like I'm that old now that I'm allowed to say, well, back in the good old times, you know, everything was better. That's like <laughs> the age I've reached. That's how old I got. No, but seriously, I, I love any kind that uh, brings people to tennis. But I do think it's a little bit the easy way out. It's just much easier to pick up right away. And if it brings people to tennis, good on them. But I do wish those money and funds would go to tennis, to the real tennis. <laughs> and that's applicable. Maybe they can coexist. Who knows? You know, yeah. like I said, you know, like you said, if it brings people to a sport, you know, a ball sport. Noah Rubin just quit tennis and, and became a pro pickleball player. I know. I know. Good for him. You know, we're going to chat about your decision to retire a little bit later in the show. And you just mentioned a little bit about the elbow. A lot of fans wrote in asking how your old body is holding up, you know, <laughs> the elbow, despite the elbow. I mean, the mind is there, but it's really the elbow that's kind of, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, so the, my body just, it's not like I'm waking up in pain every day. That's okay. not the issue. Right. I can live a normal life. I'm happy. I can 
go for walks. I do still do sports. I still work out every day for an hour or so. I just have to do it a little bit more mildly, if that makes sense. I can't go into full intensities anymore. And the issue for me this year was really that I couldn't sustain a certain amount of training and practicing and playing matches in the way I wanted to. Mm -hmm. I had been in the top 10. And even though my last few seasons weren't as top 10 worthy as they used to be in uh, 2014 and 2015, uh, I still have high expectations of myself. And this was the first year where I felt like I couldn't really keep up the training in order to beat the best in the world. And I'm too proud to kind of be pushed out of tennis because I'm not good enough anymore. I really wanted to to finish where I can feel I'm still good enough to beat any player on any given day. And I felt like I could still do this. If tennis was built like athletics, where you prepare for one event in the year, you know, where you have like three months and you can do uh, recovery time and then preparation time and then be ready for that one event, I could still play for another six years, but that's not how tennis works. We have a full season. We have 11 months that we have to be out there, the traveling and the training and all of that. My body couldn't do anymore. I had um, four big knee surgeries, So I had some chronic knee pains as well. And then the elbow kind of put the nail in the coffin. So it was already not going well. And then when the elbow came around, it just went downhill from there. But I'm not bitter about it because I could feel it coming. It's a slow process. It's not something that comes overnight. But the realization that it might not go back, because you always, as a tennis player, we are kind of delusional. You always think, oh, it's going to come back. You know, I just have to rest five days and I'll be fine again. You know, this is just something. So this realization of your body not getting back to being 20 again and your body settling in into this like new age and new recovery times, that realization kind of comes overnight or quite quickly. And, uh, and that set in for me this year. So I was just looking for... A good moment and I was so happy that I still got to play an amazing match in in my last uh, event with like really high quality that was the most important to me amazing because I was so afraid I was so nervous that I would have a bad match in my last appearance so and I started I don't know if you saw that I started with four double faults in a row yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I never like I'm not a big server I don't serve aces but I'm kind of known for never serving really double faults I would every match I would have like two maximum yeah. three like three would be on a really windy day. And I didn't serve aces, but I had like a solid serve. I always have 75, um, between 70 and 75% of first serves. And so this was so strange to me. And I was like, oh my yeah. God, this is not going. You're like, oh shit, this is where it starts. <laughs> Correct. And I, and I couldn't look at my team. They were probably just like pale as the wall sitting in the corner like what is happening and then thank god when i um i and then i lost another four points like i lost eight points in a row within like 30 seconds and then when i won my first game and i could feel my rhythm coming back and i could feel my muscles melting i was like okay don't worry everything is fine and so it was really really good last match against belinda bencic by the way i played against belinda at the us open and uh it was a good way to go out of course i would have wanted to win but this was okay we're going to talk about it for sure. You have a lot of upset fans. You know, they wanted that goodbye tour, <laughs> that Petco tour. So we're, you have some unanswered questions to later in the show. But the good thing is the holiday season is, is right around the corner. So everyone listening, maybe we all just send her, I don't know, some tape, some hot glue. I don't know, Advil, some Bengay. <laughs> Advil. Advil, definitely. Yeah, for sure. But the strongest, extra strength. <laughs> 
who knows? Maybe we'll get you back out there to play Radwanska, get that big win that we're on that Legends tour that we're all investing in. I mean, this is going to happen. This is what we manifest, right, everyone? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, talking about Radwanska, those matches were always so tough. You mentioned being the wall for you and, and the match that mm. you couldn't really get past. Not just you, by the way. I mean, Radwanska's game troubled everybody. I always find it so interesting when a player talks about their head-to-heads in their career and the particulars of a head-to-head, really. You have a fan question from a friend of the pod, Lars Mellis in Los Angeles, California. He's a major Petco fan, and he wrote in to ask, can you please ask Petco about her matches against players with unique playing styles versus more traditional aggressive baseliners? She struggled with players like Aga, Rybirakova, and Nicolescu, but dominated players like Muguruza, Bouchard, and Hantukova. Why do you think the more unique playing styles were tougher for her game? Ah, that's such a good question. I love knowledgeable questions. It's so good. Um, well, I really appreciate Lars's knowledge, of, first of all, not only the question, but he clearly knows the game really well and knows my head-to-heads well. And, um, and he's totally right. Those were always the players that I struggled with most. And it was interesting. Whenever I had good seasons, I tend to win these matches in... Mm-hmm. Um, not overall, but I would tend to win two out of three, you know, whereas when I had bad seasons, I would lose all three of these difficult matches. And um, and it was always kind of a good measure for me to see where I stand, where my tennis is. And I think the reason for, for me playing against players who play more traditional, maybe as we perceive it, power tennis, big girl tennis, is I knew that I could always outlast them in a sense I knew that mm-hmm. like I wasn't the craftiest player on the WTA but I knew that I was really tough mentally I knew I had a that was maybe my biggest strength I knew that I had a tremendous amount of ability to focus on one point and for a really long time and against these players you kind of have to wait for your chance for them to have a, a little down because they will serve a bunch of aces they will hit a few winners but they will always have that one hole of concentration where you can break or they will always have that one down where they give you three, four unforced errors, then you just have to be there and be steady. And this is something that I knew that I could do really well. And that was something also that kind of enforced that uh, that strength of concentration even more because I knew I could depend on it and I had to depend on it. Now, <laughs> with the other type of players coming to the uh, to the other part of that question, I knew that I had to play and create the game. And I knew also that I could do it, but I also uh, was always very aware that it was much more challenging to my type of game. I could play spins and I could play slices. I, I know how to do it all. I'm quite an accomplished technical player. I was very lucky my dad taught me a lot of technical skills early on. So I I know how to do all of this, but still from the mental side or from the mental perspective, it was always a different kind of challenge for me because I'm, uh, and I think this is why I love tennis so much because the personalities come out so much and our safety bags that we build for ourselves, the safety nets. And for me, it was always discipline, structure, stability, consistency. And that's great in the long run. It brings you far and brings you to a certain point. But 
in some instances, you need creativity and openness and freedom. And I know that I have that hidden within me, but it was much harder for me to unlock it. And then in those great seasons when I was really okay with myself and I felt much, much more whole in all, in all senses possible, I was able to unlock that creativity that I needed to beat those players. And this is sometimes the, the danger of when you're out of confidence, you kind of go into the things that you know work the best for you, which for me was always discipline, structure, uh, concentration, but it makes your game so predictable. And then it's harder for you to win matches. So this is, it's the vicious circle of you going even yeah. further into your safety nets that are not helping you, but are hurting you. And uh, so I actually always appreciated when I played those players, even when I lost, that always gave me the, uh, the wake-up call that I needed to become more open, more free again, uh, more spirited, more creative. And so even though it was really hard and disappointing losses to those players, they brought me further in my game that whenever I won or lost to them. I feel like we're at the Church of Petkovic today. I love this. This is great. I love it today. We're having so much fun. Since we're talking about head-to-heads, another fan on Facebook, actually, Alan Uar in Brussels, Belgium asks, looking back now, who would you say was your trickiest opponent or most difficult opponent for you? Was there anybody that when you saw the draw, you just said, oh shit, <laughs> not bad. Well, Radvanska, when she was still yeah, playing, for sure. okay. Radvanska. And for some reason, the last two seasons, Sasnovich. I don't know why, but I just couldn't. She played always incredibly well against me. Like three of the matches that I lost against her, I really, I was playing, I've played a few bad matches against her, but there were a few where I played well. And she just, apparently my game is something that lies within her strengths or she feels very comfortable playing me and uh and for me it was always very for example i'm a really good uh returner like that's one of my strengths i think or one because i was never you you see and this is what i like about tennis when you lacking a strength you kind of develop another strength so uh, i knew i was never a big server i was consistent server but i never had aces i never had really free points i always had to play the the game but it made me a quite a good returner because I knew I couldn't rely on my serve so much mm -hmm. and I could not for the life of me read her serve I was always I would <laughs> uh it was so hard to ace me because normally I can read the game pretty well and I even if I don't hit winners I would like get my my record on the ball and somehow put it in and be in the rally and with her for the life of me, I could not read her serve. I couldn't do anything about it. So the last two, three seasons, for some reason, she was the one opponent that I always stumble upon. <laughs> yeah, and and Sassy's pretty. Uh, she's a tricky opponent. I think so. She yeah. is. I, she is in general. Yeah, she's yeah. definitely. Yeah, she, she has. She is. I put her in that in that group, that Nicolescu group, which I, I, saw, yeah. I saw a match. I saw you play Nicolescu one time. I almost. You know, I almost <laughs> punched myself in the face, but, but anyway. <laughs> Someone tennis fans love seeing in the draw is our special guest today, Andre Pekovic. There's so much to unpack from your over 1100 combined matches you played on tour during your career. That's a lot of matches, you know? No wonder, you know, we're talking about Advil today. <laughs> so let's blast some Bohemian Rhapsody and take a drive down Petco Parkway as we get to know the fantastic Andre Pekovic. I've compiled the most popular topics that your fans want answers to. The topics today range from the beginning of your career all the way to your life today. And along the way, we'll even test your memory with a couple ridiculous questions that will see just how well you remember your own career. So let's jump in. Eat them all. Let's do it. Come on. I'm ready. 
Let's start today at the very beginning though, Andy. I like to ask this question because it, it gives me a little perspective. Can you remember the first tennis match you remember watching live or on television? Well, I remember the first, <laughs> this is actually a funny story. The first time I was supposed to see a, a, a live match, I went on this, uh, I was invited on this community thing on a bus. They were all going to the French Open. My parents didn't have so much money. So somehow I got in there by some friends took me. I don't remember exactly um, how I was maybe 11 years old. And we drove with the bus to Paris, which is like seven or eight hours. We arrived there. I was so excited. We had to leave Darmstadt, where I live. We had to leave Darmstadt like three in the morning to be there for the first match. Uh, we arrived there and I remember it so distinctly. The first round match was Pete Sampras against Mark Filipusis because Mark Filipusis had had surgery and he was coming back. He wasn't seated anymore because he was coming back from an injury. Wow. And that was like the game to watch. And yeah. I think they played second or third on Suzanne Longlen. And we had tickets not for Philippe Chatrier, but for Suzanne Longlen. I was so excited. Pete Sampras is one of my favorite players. We arrived there. I feel a drop of rain on my nose. It starts raining and it rains for two days straight. And I saw Pete Sampras and Mark Filipusis play one game where Sampras served three aces and a service winner. And then it started and then it rained again and it was suspended. And that's all I got to see. But I was still hooked. I was still hooked. Tennis was still my passion. Wow. And, uh, and so that was the first life experience I had. It was kind of sad, really. That's hilarious. That is hilarious. Well, I have <laughs> the actual first of some fan questions for you today. Your fan on Instagram, Parker Pratt 303 asks, I know you to be an actual fan of tennis and the sport. What's your favorite random tennis match that you've ever watched? Philippusis Sampras is not random. I mean, that's pretty, <laughs> we're talking legends there. Okay. What's your favorite random tennis match you've ever watched? Well, I have two. I don't know if they are, the one is not so random, but what I really love to do, I go on YouTube and I just watch um, highlights of matches just like randomly scroll through and then my algorithm is already um, is already applying these, <laughs> these hobbies so I already get suggested just random matches and I seem to be coming back to two and one of them is Sharapova against Nicolescu at Doha I don't know I mean tennis fans will remember this match when... they will everyone's like oh yeah everyone's oh yeah not <laughs> exactly. in their car wherever they're listening right now they're like oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's like yeah girl we know what you're talking about when yeah girl <laughs> <laughs> when Maria just randomly started playing forehand slices, slices. as well. Yeah. It, was, yeah, it was so amazing. Uh, so that's one. And then the other one, which is one of my favorites, it's not as random, is uh, because I think that was a second round in Doha. So it was really random. And then the other one is the semifinals Australian Open between Hantuhova and Anna Ivanovic with the great, great um, screeching shoes gate, as I call it. The scandal of the screeching shoes when Anna Ivanovic almost lost O and O to a Daniela Hantuhova. I've never seen zone this hard in my entire life. I think she was supposed to win the Australian Open. That's how good she played. And uh, and then the screeching shoe scandal all hit the wall. So that was fantastic. I love to watch that. I feel like we're going to get a lot of DMs just because of these two matches right now. So thank you for going <laughs> into the archives, into the annals. You went a little newer and then you went old school. So retro. I love it. Yeah. 
Can we talk about growing up for a minute? Because I've actually met your father, Zoran, a couple of times. And after a big win you had against Petra Kvitova at the US Open, he took the entire player box out for beers afterwards. And we celebrated and he was so proud. And I chatted with him for a while and he was such a great player himself. I had no idea. He played college tennis at South Carolina. He actually played Davis Cup for Yugoslavia, even playing Ely Nastasi once. I mean, that's pretty incredible. What was that like having someone like him guiding you as a kid. He didn't strike me really as the quintessential tennis father. Yeah, the opposite. He really is the opposite. Maybe he should have pushed me more in some instances, actually. <laughs> but he was really the opposite, which is great for our... And also very early on, he said, like, I will always be here if you need me, but I don't want to be a traveling coach. I, my relation or our relationship as father and daughter is more important to me. And I think that was a really good call because we have a great relationship. We are very close and, uh, and tennis never got in the way because it gets so stressful on tour and it's just the pressure makes people do crazy things and say crazy things. And I think we see it all the time and it's not fruitful for private relationships if they are entangled with, uh, with work as well. I think that's my opinion. And, um, and so, but what was really, really lucky for me compared to other players who didn't make it in the end, I had this advantage that in the beginning, especially players from countries where there are no grand slams, where the federation doesn't have a lot of money to, to support their players. It's very expensive to become a tennis professional. You have to travel to all these remote places to play tournament, all the costs you have to carry yourself, you have to pay coaches. And then if you win these small tournaments, you get like a thousand bucks, if at all, and you have to pay flights and hotels and food and your coach. And in the end, you're in a minus. And so I was so lucky in that beginning when I had no money and I traveled alone, I always had the, the possibility of calling my dad after a match and telling him, hey, I didn't feel my forehand. And he knew already, even by not seeing me, what he could tell me or get, which tip he could give me to, to improve it for the next day. And I'm very aware that other players did not have that uh, luxury to have somebody at home that you could call and ask for coaching tips. And uh, so that was very lucky until I finally started to earn some money and could pay a coach and, uh, and then eventually even pay for a physio and keep my body in check. So that was really quintessential to my career, I think. What was what was little Andre Pekovic like though? <laughs> were you as feisty on court as as you ended up being in your in your twenties? I mean, were you were you that little kid? Oh my god, I was so <laughs> terrible. I was such a terrible junior. I would like when it was not going well, I was throwing rackets and just yelling and super so much rage so much rage like classic road rage but just all the time on the court just all the time and then I was also annoying in the other direction when I was winning I would yell come on into the other players faces and be just like which I kind of then I still kept that in a way this like feistiness and competitiveness I just trimmed it down to a normal degree when I was a junior I, it was all raw and out there and you could read every emotion on my face and I managed to tone it down after a while. <laughs> <laughs> you played several years on the ITF junior circuit before turning pro in 2006. And for your first Petco player quiz question, I'm going to test how far back your memory goes. Ooh. And it's about your ITF junior circuit days. Oh God. Andy, can you name the future Grand Slam singles champion that you beat in the first round of a junior tournament back in 2003? Oh my God. So she, uh, she was a future Grand Slam champion 
at the adults. And the in the in the old lady division, yes. In the old lady division. <laughs> Oh yeah, I beat Anna Ivanovich at the Australian. Oh, we're yeah. on the board. She doesn't lose, everyone. She keeps going. Come on. <laughs> First round of Australian Open Juniors. I love that it just like, you're like, no, I can't. And then all of a sudden you're like, yes, I can. I got it. Yeah. I got this. The wheels were coming. And I will tell you a funny anecdote about that match. We were, that was the first time we were in Australia, both of us. And Anna was a pretty high seed. I think she was second seed. Because I hadn't played so many tournaments in Germany. It's really hard to get away from school. So it was a little bit stricter. But Anna knew me because we're both like originally, I'm originally from Serbia. So she knew who I was. She knew it was a tough draw, even though my ranking was not there. We played for three hours. I won nine, seven in the third. Exactly. And both of us. Yeah. And both of us. Is that true? Is that the yes. right score? Yeah, yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> and both of us had not, um, was, was the first time in Australia. We both hadn't put on sunscreen and we were so sunburned that after the match, we lay in the physios and they had to put on like, yogurt and aloe vera like all down our bodies we were both in adidas so we were wearing the same kit and we had the same sunburn and the same spaces in our body and never again have i forgotten to put on sunscreen in australia ever thank you anna ivanovich there you go you know wear your yeah. sunscreen everybody for sure well you'd beat anna actually on grass during broccoli season in 2010 and her turgambash as well oh so my god i know add her to the list of actually i wanted you to guess i i, I don't even know if you know how many number former number ones you've beaten but it's 11 11 former number ones you've beaten oh, in your career so i mean wow. amazing good for me <laughs> good for you good for you <laughs> come on you turned pro officially andrea in 2006 but at that time you'd already won like four or five itf events so you left a lot of money on the table just fyi i mean that's like a whole leather jacket just like i know i know well and you know what the only thing that i wouldn't wouldn't call it a regret my parents always made me go to school and do my studies and do all these things. I do think that if I had started earlier, I think I would have finished earlier as well. So that's the downside to it. But I do think that I would have had more sponsors if I had uh, reached some heights earlier in my life when I was maybe 18, because I started, I turned pro when I was 18. So my best uh, year came when I was 21. So if you count that back and I would have been 18 with my best year, I guess I would have got many more sponsors and all of this. but. Honestly, it's good how it was because I was also quite mature. I had, uh, I was uh, well educated from school. So when this weird first wave of fame hit me, I mean, if you can talk about fame, but just in this realms of speaking of the realms in tennis, uh, I was quite mature ready to take it fairly well. I mean, I was struggling with it. Um, but when I see these really young players like Naomi or Belinda, when they really hit the stage so young and see how they struggle, I always think back, like, how would I have done it? And I wouldn't have done it any better. It's just a lot to handle. And if you don't have a certain maturity, it's almost impossible to handle. It's fascinating. I feel like we can go down an entire hallway of, you know, that conversation about how you realize. We'll do a part two. We'll do a part two where we just talk about this. Let's do it because, you know, you, when do you realize that, oh my gosh, people are interested in what I'm doing? Like that's, that's a big moment in someone's life where you're just like, oh, wait a second, you know, a hundred percent. By 2007, your ranking was already high enough to play in your first Grand Slam at the French Open. You'd qualify, winning your first round match, and then you'd nearly defeat 
top 20 player at the time, Marion Bartoli in the second round with all of her amazing drills. I mean, the most famous drills. I've, I, I, I miss her so much just because I want to see her train. That would be your first big main draw win. You'd beat Jamila Gajasova that year, who you'd also beat in the third round a few years later. So, uh, you know, a, yeah. a, an opponent that you were familiar with. That match started a love affair with the French Open for you. And it would be an event that you'd play 14 times mm -hmm. in your career, a semifinal, a quarterfinal, three third rounds, making it your most successful Grand Slam. We're going to talk about your French Open run in 2014 in a few minutes, but five of your seven career titles came on clay. What made you such a formidable opponent on the dirt? Oh, that's a good question. Well, um, it's weird, right? Because my tennis, the way I play my style of tennis is more suited to hard courts, really. Mm -hmm. And um, and so many people have told me, you should be a really good player on grass. Well, on grass, maybe, but not on broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I do think 80% of tennis is mental. And it's a lot about attitude and what kind of attitude you go uh, you approach a certain surface or a certain type of match or a certain type of match up, whatever it is, any challenge, the way you approach it is really important in tennis. And I always loved getting dirty on the clay. And I mean that not only in a literal sense, but also in a metaphoric sense, you really had to go out there and it was clear you're going to leave your last bit of drop of sweat on the, on the surface. It's hard physically. It's hard mentally. The rallies last forever. Um, you can't really hold your surf easily. It's not as easy to hit winners. And I always loved sliding. I had this knee injury very early on. So the clay always was a little bit easier on my joints. And I always felt much more comfortable on, on these surfaces that gave way a little where you could slide, where you could just use all of the court. And, and yeah, so I think that's why... That's why I loved clay so much. And the French Open was just for so long until I uh, sort of moved to New York and, had, and found a whole new friendship circle in New York. For a long time, Paris felt like the most home grand slam, quote unquote, that we us Europeans could get because it was like four hours by train from, from my hometown and a lot of family and friends came and that always gave me an extra kick when I was there. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, everyone loves that support. In 2008, you'd have your first major injury as a torn ACL would keep you off the tour for nearly eight months. I mean, again, we could have an entire show about the injuries you've had. I mean, you've come back from injuries more time than Elena Ostapenko's worn that leopard dress this season. I mean, <laughs> we stand, we stand. Yeah, we do stand. No, that's not, that's not a slight. I'm obsessed with the leopard print dress. I mean, she's tried to make it happen all season long and I appreciate it. <laughs> When you'd come back playing full-time in 2009, you'd end up winning your very first WTA title in Bad Gestein. I love saying Bad Gestein yeah. in Austria. It's your old friend on the red clay. Can we go back to 2009 for a minute? What do you remember from that title run in Austria, winning your first WTA title? How'd you celebrate? I actually, I cried. And that was maybe the only, I cried two times when I won something big because I'm a happy person and and I rarely cry in general, not like when I'm sad, I don't cry. The only times I really cry is when I'm really angry. Like that's the thing that gets me. Oh, and I'm such a crybaby with like pop culture shit, you know, like a nice song in a concert or a nice movie scene or, you know, an advertising will get me there. Like this is something that I cry easily for some reason. I think the surprising element of something touching you in a movie is like, oh my God, yes, I still have exactly. feelings. And so you're yeah. like starting to cry. <laughs> 
so, uh, but the two times I did cry was when I won Batka Stein. And I think it was this relief more than happiness. Um, the happiness came much later because I really was worried. It was my first big injury later. I unfortunately gained experience with injuries and I knew what the body goes through and what you experience and what challenge, what kind of challenges you face physically and mentally. So that was much easier. But this first big injury, I really wasn't sure if I could come back from it. I Because a lot of people told me, oh, you're so young to have this injury. It's the biggest. So I was really worried. And I think this was more relief. And interestingly, the same type of emotion when I beat uh, Jeannie Bouchard and Charleston in the semifinals, mm -hmm. I also came back from a surgery there. And I had been struggling for much longer, for a year or so. I couldn't get my groove back. And then in Charleston was my first big tournament where I... Uh, where I reached the final and I cried there too. And it was also more of relief really than happiness. And both times the happiness came later. It was more like a contentment really than happiness where I was just like, okay, this is the thing I want to do. And finally, I'm also successful at it and, um, yeah. and don't have to, you know, do it in obscurity on like little tournaments somewhere in the Czech Republic. And, uh, and so these two times, yeah, I really cried from relief or happiness or whatever it is. <laughs> oh, thanks for sharing that. That's, yeah. that's a great story. In 2000, is 2009, Andrea, happy with that win in Badgestein? You, you'd entered the top 50 for the first time. Is she hungry for more? Does she want to be number one? Is early Andrea uh, kind of, I don't very ambitious towards becoming this like big superstar or, or what, what's your mental state at that point early on? Oh, definitely. So this is I earlier I mentioned that uh, it was a kind of regret, but not a real regret that I hadn't um, finished school earlier and went on to be a pro earlier and gotten all the sponsorship money I could get, I guess. But um, but that's not really a regret because I do see the the downsides, uh, a lot of them. And, uh, and I think I would have retired much earlier if that had happened. But the real regret that I do have from my career, and it's the strongest and the one that really permeates me is that when I was very successful, I never really enjoyed it. And on the on a one hand, it is the thing that makes you really strong as a tennis player is that you're never you never feel like it's enough. You always want more. And so when I won the tournament already the next day, I went out on the practice court because I was like, yes, that felt fucking great. Yeah. And I want this again and again and again. It's like a kind of an addiction. Mm -hmm. We're like, I want the next high. I want the next high. I hate this low. I need the next high. And so you keep going. You keep pushing yourself. And it got me to number nine in the world. But even when I was number nine in the world, not one time did I stop for a second. I was like, man, this little girl from Darmstadt that fled Yugoslavia when the war started got pretty far. You go, girl. It was more like I'm nine, but there are eight women in front of me. How can I get them? Wow. And so that's the only real regret that I have that I never really was able to stop and enjoy it or be proud or whatever or happy about it. It was really this ambition eating me up inside. And as I said, it made me so strong. It made me that good. And it uh, gave me all the energy I needed to, you know, uh, do all the training and traveling without without missing home too much or or having something stronger that kept me away from home that it was okay. But that's the one thing I would always, if I was advising or coaching a younger player, I would always have them like stop for a while. Yeah. Let's have a glass of wine. <laughs> as long as they are 21. <laughs> <laughs> 
but you know, you reached a lot, be proud. This is amazing. And then the next day we can talk about training again and going for the next goals. Well, you know, that, that fuel really, and that ambition really kind of kept you going for so long. And that makes sense why you played so long on tour too. Well, by 2010, there was a noticeable difference in your physical and mental game at the start of the season. That year, you beat Kvitova and Ivanovic, made the finals of Hrtorgumbash. You beat Kuznetsova in Tokyo. You beat Kerber in Linz. You beat Petrova, made the fourth round of the US Open that year. And by the way, I think that US Open is where the Petko dance made its debut, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, which, like it or not, is your signature. I don't know. I don't know if you like it or not, but uh, <laughs> fans would chant that for a decade. I don't know if you knew one little silly fun dance after a match would really sustain you for a whole entire decade. <laughs> Do you have a favorite Petko dance story? from your years on tour? Well, that was that was my favorite, I think the first one, because it was just so spontaneous and without any, yeah, it was just very spontaneous and came purely out of myself. And then the next one was when I did it in China, because I really thought, why would people in China know that I do the silly little dance? And they were like, so I like went, you know how you, you like win the match, you go out to wave to the audience and like, uh, thank everyone for their support and the fans in China are amazing they are so loud and like so passionate it's really fun to play there and so I was uh, like going out to th- and I I was like I shouldn't do the dance they won't understand it you know they won't get it because why and it was the first or second year I want to say maybe not the first but it was the second or third year only that we started having many more tournaments in China it was the beginning of this so that really started uh, when I was playing well this like whole wave of having tournaments in China started at around that time. So it was like the first, second, third year maybe where we had these big uh, tournaments there and it was in Beijing. And I was like about to leave without doing the dance. And then the Chinese fans were like, Petco dance. And I'm like, really? Okay. <laughs> um, but I guess that's the that's the power of, of social media. And um, I don't know, you probably too. I was born in 87. I grew up in an analog world, but then I was thrown into the digital world when I was around 19 or 20. So I was not yet aware of the power of social media, but that was fun to have, you know, like entire differently culture that just started having tournaments a second ago, basically uh, knowing that you're, that you're known for this dance was really, really fun. And it shows you how global tennis is and like how, how it speaks to so many different people. You created a brand. That's what you were doing. I mean, you're a businesswoman from day one. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Just how to monetize it is the question. That's right. You were building momentum and sh- shooting up the rankings. You had a new fan following, a Pekarazzi YouTube channel. You're putting in the work to become the best player you were. 2011 would arguably be your best season on tour. The hard courts in particular is where you play some fantastic tennis. Semifinals in Cincinnati and Miami, quarters of the US Open, final of Beijing. You'd make three Grand Slam quarterfinals that year. That Wimbledon third round, by the way, is that loss to Pervac is probably in my top five matches that I wish I'd like a redo in your career. Not that you want to hear them. We'll talk about another time. And I'd love to hear yours one day because, you know, we have so much to talk about. But that year in 2011, you'd start the year by demolishing Maria Sharapova to make your first Grand Slam quarterfinal. You'd have seven wins against players in the top 10, including beating then-world number one, Caroline Wozniacki in Miami, which not many players can say that they beat a current number one in the world. I mean, that's incredible. So in honor of that win, here's your second ridiculous Petco player quiz questions. Come on. In addition to your victory over Caroline, you'd earn a victory over a player who was number two in the world when you beat her. Can you name that player? 
who was number two in the world when I beat her. <laughs> let me think, let me think. I beat Kuznetsova when she was five in the world. Mm-hmm. I remember that was my first big top 10 win, but number two? I don't remember. Can you give me a tip? Uh, sure, a tip. Um, <laughs> uh, do you know which year or which tournament? Oh, I know. Of course I do. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> you, you just played her recently. Oh, really? Yeah. Maybe uh, your last your last French Open. Um, oh, as a Renka, she was number two. It was in Beijing. Yeah, China Open 2013. Oh yeah, number two. That's right. I didn't know that she was number two. I knew that she was in a, that she was one of, maybe she was the top seed, but I had no idea. Yeah. yeah. And 2018, Sloan. I mean, I was at that match. That was my first match. I yeah. was sitting courtside. She was number three in the world. So, I mean, you have... Wow. No one wants to see a Petco in the draw. I'm just saying. Look at Andrea. Look at her. You go, girl, right? (laughs) Uh, We've mentioned Caroline and Vika and Maria. I just mentioned Sloan. Is there a match where you felt like you played the absolute best in your career? Is there a quintessential Petco match where you were just in the zone? You had to COVID yourself for like, well... I guess for like a set and a half. We won't use her as an example, but. Yeah. Uh... Well, I do have to say um, two matches, actually. The the one prior to Caroline Wozniacki, when I beat her in Miami, I played uh, the third round against Iveta Beneshova back then. She isn't playing anymore. She was a very good player, lefty, very dangerous. Um, and she was, I think, 30 in the world at that time. And I was top 20, like I was supposed to win, but I think I won one and oh. And I was zoning so hard. And especially because against her, uh, she was a very aggressive player and she always took the ball very early and played flat. So it would have been normally a match that I win maybe three and four, you know, outlasting her, being tougher in the important moments. But in this moment, I was just like standing in the court, taking the balls early and just like hitting, slapping winners all over the place. I was like, what is happening here? Uh, so that was one. And then the other one was against Irani at the French Open quarterfinals. I won 6-2, 6-2. Yeah. And a similar thing. And it was interesting. I started also really badly. Um, the first, I was down 2-0. And I felt at one point, if I don't step it up, I can lose this 1-0. Because I was just like, we were we had rallies. And I would always eventually miss the... She was just like kind of not moonballing me. Irani was much more than that. I think people don't give her enough credit. She had one of the best backhands down the lines in the world. But she was like just not missing. And I would play well for like 10 shots and then eventually miss. And it was I was down 2-0, 40-15. And then I won a really big point. And after that, I just the same. I kind of just went into full zone mode and uh, and just hit winners of all the balls that were coming my way. And I won 2-2, two and two, which was... Uh, and I think she had played finals the year before, so she was definitely the, uh, the favorite to win this match in the quarters. Exactly. And those two matches, I would say. But that's not really the matches I think coaches would like me to say those were my best matches, because those are not, you know, that we all have this one match a season or every two seasons where just everything is going away. But uh, my coach would probably say a match that I played really tactically smart and was very disciplined and did all the right things and then won seven, five, six, four. You know, that's what coaches prefer. Exactly. I'm not a coach, I'm a player. <laughs> exactly. Of course. <laughs> We're going to fast forward a bit here because honestly, we could do so many episodes with you. 2012 was definitely a year. We're not going to talk about it was injury after injury. And, you know, again, we'll have another entire show. Yes, definitely. Yes. 2012 sucks. Can we just say that? Yeah. It was just like, yeah, it just sucked. (laughs) Uh, Mercury was in retrograde. (laughs) 
it was. I don't know what what the hell you did that year to get the karma that you received in 2012, but it, you definitely like I don't know. You did the sagebrush and you got much better as the years went yes. on. I think I think the entire planet for me that day was in retrograde. Not on on not only Mercury but everyone. <laughs> we have so many things to talk about. I mean, obviously 2014, your season in Charleston. We just talked about a little bit. We alluded to it on the green clay. Your semifinal at the French Open, your tournament of champions in Bulgaria, 2014. Can you summarize 2014 very quickly for us? What was that year, that Renaissance year, like for you to win those titles and to to get back what you had had back in 2009? Well, that was amazing because now looking back from my perspective of the unemployed, <laughs> um, it's really interesting. I think I prefer so 2011 and 2014 were by far my best seasons, and I ended both in the top 10. And um, and in 2011, I made it to the Masters. And in uh, 2014, I just barely missed it. I was maybe like the second or third player that just missed it. Yeah. And so both were really, really good seasons for me and uh, and somewhat consistent. And yet in 2011, my whole season, I didn't win one title, but in every tournament, I would reach at least the quarterfinals. So I was so consistent. I just couldn't seem to lose before third round. And that was like really amazing. But I didn't have these triumphs where I won the tournament. And in 2014, I was kind of a hot mess. I was playing in my peak times. I was playing amazing. I played the semifinals at the French Open. And I won three titles in a year, which is kind of crazy that I did this. I don't even know how. Um, and then, but I also lost like a bunch of first rounds. I played horrible matches. And now looking back at it, that's the interesting part. When you look back at something, those titles stay longer than the consistent year that you have, even though it's much harder to play consistently week in, week out. It's much harder to do as a tennis player. But obviously in my mind is the uh, Bulgarian championships in the end and the other titles that I won in the semifinals oh. at the French Open. So the brain is fickle, you know, the brain is fickle. And I remember 2014 much more than 2011 for some reason. Well, something else to be proud of is writing your own book. <laughs> I want to talk about your book for a minute. I remember reading your essay, Tennis versus Tennis in Racket Magazine, and which was critically acclaimed. And I, it was recognized and, and you told me you were writing a book and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to read it. And then the book came out and I was like, oh, it's in German. Okay. So let me translate it and figure this out. But congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Congratulations. The book titled Between Fame and Honor Lies the Night. It is stories from your life growing up in former Yugoslavia and your journey to the top 10 and so much more. The book is in German, but since my German is niche good, <laughs> um, I was able to translate a few passages. Can you tell people listening, even people that don't know German, why you wrote this book? Um, so I, I've always been, as you said, I've always been writing, but more along the essay and column type of way, which is shorter text. Um, trying to be funny, trying to be witty, not along the long text that a book requires or or just like the immersion into a subject matter. I never did that. I was more like quippy little pieces about one thing. And then the first bigger uh, thing I wrote was this reportage that you read in Wreckit, which was I compared traveling on tour with a band, which was the band Tennis, accidentally called, so it has nothing to do with tennis, uh, and being on tour as a tennis player. So kind of being on tour as an artist and being on tour as a tennis player, I kind of compared that. It was a longer piece. I think it was four or 5,000 words long. So it showed me that I can write these longer pieces. And then a bunch of publishing houses came forward in Germany asking me if I was interested in writing, writing a book. And I was like, yeah, but only if I can do it the way I want to do it. 
And then most of the public publishing houses were like, okay, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but the idea had sprung. And, um, and so I, I, I sat down, I wrote eight chapters and uh, I found a literary agent and then she approached some of these same publishing houses and then they really liked those eight chapters and then kind of a bidding war ensued. And uh, the publishing house I'm with now is super great. I'm so happy. I just met them yesterday. Actually, the Frankfurt Book Fair is going on right now, not far from me. So I met them yesterday and they're super great. And I'm so, so lucky and thankful that I picked them because I had a few other choices and they know that. (laughs) Well, can I say one of your major fans, someone that I always saw that supported you on Twitter and Instagram, Lorena Papa in Romania. Yeah. She wrote in and she said, I know you're working on your second book. I'm curious how it's going and will there be another it will be another autobiography maybe. Well, um I'm uh, I'm headed to New York to try and uh, and finish the book. I have it's supposed to be 12 chapters. I have five already. So I did the same with the first book. I'm going into kind of a writer's retreat for 4 weeks and trying to really just do that and nothing else. Uh, I'm writing here as well, but I'm dabbling, as you can see, in other things. So, and uh, a good book requires all of your attention, and it requires you to immerse yourself in the atmosphere of what you want to create. I'm not looking forward to it because it is a process. Uh, once yeah. in the process, it's really fun, but it is a process. Um, and my goal is to have it finished or to have a raw version finished by the end of the year. Do we get an exclusive? Is it a, is there a genre? Yes. So I can't, I can't say too much, but it is okay. supposed to be about farewells and letting go of something that you don't want to necessarily let go of. So it's, wow. it's, it's going to be about tennis again, not as much as, <laughs> not as much maybe as in my first book, but it will be about tennis as well. And just like generally about saying farewell to things that you still love. I love it. All right. We're winding down today with Peko and you're probably thinking, well, he hasn't asked her about winning Baggestein for a second time. He hasn't asked her even about the, the huge Diamond Games trophy she won at the premier event in Brussels in 2015. And he certainly hasn't mentioned that after seven long years of hard work that she won, uh, and, and rehab, by the way, many, many hours of rehab that she won. She rode up on a, on a stallion horse and won in Cluj, her seventh <laughs> WTA title. I mean, come on, there's so much to talk about today. But I have to, I have to, uh, just stop you right there because I have to take this on my thing. I scheduled Jan to be the last thing of my day and then I got another thing in. So I'm rushing to another appointment that was not planned. So this is really on me. Jan didn't forget anything. He has all the questions prepared. And I had to, to cut the time short. So I feel really bad. And I'm offering here. This is an offer you cannot refuse. Is um, giving you a part two if you want to, where we can go through all the other things. But uh, you don't have to take the offer. You can say no as well. I won't be angry. <laughs> definitely. I think definitely we take the offer. Okay, we're wrapping up, but I want to I wanna do, let's do a rapid fire 15 questions. We'll try really quick. And maybe you just kind of, we'll just kind of go through these. You're a notorious fashion queen, Andrea. At TaylorMade Designs asks, what was your favorite kit you wore from your years on tour? You just can't elaborate. You're just gonna have to say. Yes, um, my favorite... Uh, I think when I was still in Stella, when Stella was still doing the tennis kits, uh, most of them, my favorite, I think, was the one I wore in Miami against Caroline Wozniacki. That's a good one. Sexiest ATP player of all time? 
Ooh, of all time. I mean, I know you like a lanky rock star. I know your type. Lanky rock star, kind of free spirit on the outside, a little messy, you know, a little messy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's hard for me. <laughs> I know it's, oh, Marat Safin, I would say. Marat Safin. Oh, I was, I, oh, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah. Rublev, uh, I thought maybe. Okay. All right. Medvedev. Let's see. Speaking of players, at December Moon would like to know, name a current WTA player that you'd call to bail you out of jail. Ooh. Um... Angie Kerber. Yeah, you have a lot of good friends. Kai Kanepi was. A good I was going friend. between Garby. I was going between Garby and Angie, but Angie' girlfriend is stubborn, and uh, I'll call her. Yeah. Renee would be in jail with you, so maybe not. She yeah, exactly. Renee is in jail before me, so I didn't even consider calling her. At Wangdu fifty five, in your opinion, what's the biggest controversy in tennis during your playing days? Oh, I think Sharapova getting caught on doping. We For just sure. had the news now that Simona apparently also got caught we don't have enough information yet to know what what was going what will go down there but that was definitely i think the biggest scandal yeah and strangely which it, looking back at it is really nothing when naomi didn't go to a press conference <laughs> right come on that was kind of a huge thing but if you explain it to somebody people that are not from tennis look at me like that was the scandal she didn't go to a press conference exactly screw you know wimbledon or in covid and and all those things that went went down i mean screw you know lepchenko and irani all these people who you know got caught anyway yeah also i mean again in part two we're going to elaborate on the 2017 fed cup debacle fia you know fiasco that happened too i mean there's oh my God. listen oh my God. you're you're layered at adri one nine nine six one wants to know what German reality TV show would you do if asked? Oh, never. I would not do it. Never. Okay, moving on. <laughs> of your seven titles, at Blue Eyes Tennis wants to know what do you consider your most special? I mean, Cluj. I, I, okay, I know you have to go, but Cluj for a moment. Can we just say yeah. how fucking proud I was of you? I mean, that that had to have been like a moment for you where you're just like, yes. Yeah, that was the most surprising one because I was fucking old already <laughs> when I won that. So that was really surprising. But yeah, that was very special. I do have to say it's obviously also the latest one in my memory. So yeah. Number seven, how do you handle losses after match? Can I talk to you? Do you need a second? When I got older, you could totally talk to me. Like I would talk to my, when I was younger, I would need a day or two to cool off before I talked also to my team and coaches. But that now for the past five, six years, I didn't have that anymore. I was very, like, I was very upset, but I could rationalize it and still talk normally to people yeah. and my team and then be upset for myself in a way. We talked about, you know, your feistiness, your favorite on-court tantrum during your career. Well, I had this one thing, oh my God. Um, when I won Antwerp, I was playing in Dubai the next day and I had to play the next day. That was back in the, when the WTA didn't give you day offs between, uh, between matches. So I flew all night, I flew all night, landed and had to go out and play. And I was so tired. And then I got the worst call on set point. The ball was out by like 15. This is my match. Oh, this no. is exactly what I'm saying. Really? Oh, yeah. No, this is your best tantrum for sure. <laughs> And I, but the tension was like, I threw myself on the floor like a kid and like hit the, my hands on the, on the floor. And I was so angry. Oh my God. And I mean, I was tired and everything, but. Uh, Good to know. Everyone go back and, and YouTube the Dubai 2015 match against Serena Diaz, please. It's yes. my favorite. Okay. Yes. Uh, Max Markham wants to ask, I love watching you on the doubles court. What do you consider your favorite doubles match of all time? And by the way, congrats on 2021 with Kveta Peshki. I mean, that's amazing. Again, you're going to have to come back. We've said this 10 times, but um, I want to talk about this. I was there. 
I watched you play this. I mean, yeah. it was amazing. Um, favorite doubles match of all time? Well, oh, this is so hard because I had so many, but I would say um, Rybarikova and me played semifinals in Wimbledon. And the you first sure round, we beat Peshke and Srebotnik, who were the you first did. seed. And we played on like a random court in front of three people. And uh, that was really special. And Magda was amazing on grass. She, she was. was so good. And she just pulled me like a leaden leg behind her. <laughs> At number 10, at Florian542 wants to know, uh, with you retiring and Kerber out now for a while, who do you think the next German top 20 player will be? Oh, Yulia Niemeyer, 100%. Yeah. She's so good. She's 23. She's going to kill it. She's great. She's so good. Um, along the same lines, at Health Starts Now wants to know, if you had to guess, who's the next player to win a Grand Slam that hasn't already won one? Oh, that's a very good question. I would say, um, who would I pick? It could be anybody, I think. I mean, everyone at this point. I mean, if we can Radakanu ourselves to a U.S. Open, I mean, let's yeah, go. Yeah, it could be anybody. Yeah, anybody can be. Anybody can be it. Uh, let's go with something like really boring, uh, Pliskova. Okay, I'm fine. Um, number twelve. <laughs> Sorry, that made me laugh. <laughs> I don't know. Number twelve. Okay. Uh, ARG team Petko Ruza. What book are you currently reading? I'm reading uh, Richard Wagner. The drama of music because I went to the opera on uh, oh. I'm on a writing assignment I'm not reading this voluntarily I'm on a writing assignment and I went to the opera for eight hours and fried my brain and now I'm reading about it eight hours of opera oh man number 13 a Francis dances 22 wants to know your favorite current cocktail of choice oh uh, always I always have one favorite cocktail of choice whiskey pinch of lemon pinch of honey steer well a drink. <laughs> There's so many people asked about your alcohol intake. It was very funny. It's not, is it a, a Negroni Spagliato Prosecco in it? <laughs> <laughs> You're so fancy. You're so lavish. I love it. All right, 14 at Rukulu on tennis form asks, what's your favorite memory or story from playing Fed Cup? That's just so much. I mean, again, we have to, we have to wrap up here. I mean, there's so many. There's so many, but just being in the team with the girls was especially, actually, you know what my favorite thing was? Uh, when we were in Australia, Grunefeld, Annalena, Gerges, Julia, Kerba, Angie, Petkovic, Andrea, and we were in Australia in the middle of the season. Nobody gave a shit that we were there. It was just the four of us, and we were so jet-lagged. And you know when you're so tired, we were just laughing about everything. It was like we were high on drugs or something. That was the best week of my, maybe of my entire career. It was so fun. <laughs> uh, Heinz Ryder wants to know who drank the most on the German Fed Cup team with you. Oh, definitely you, Gerges. <laughs> oh, yes. Come on, Gerges. Still call me. I'll have a call tomorrow. <laughs> All right. Last question. GLTA Tennis Live. Serena's gone. Roger's gone. Venus is almost gone. Kerber and Sue are pregnant. Now you're retired. Please let me know who's the one person I should be shifting all of my fandom towards next year. Just give me one name and I'll officially cash in all my saved up Petco points and buy stock in your recommendation. Oh my God. That's a good one. You have to name one player. Who, who are we who are we cheering for? All the Petco fans are listening right now. Who are we all shifting it? This is a very important question. Um, I would go with Dasha Kasatkina. Badass. Bad Badass. 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 Oh, okay. Well, you pissed off a lot of people, Andrea, about not giving us a goodbye, at least a Serena Williams swan song. You pulled a Roger instead, right? <laughs> I know you have a lot of friends in New York City and you consider it to be like a second home. Can I just ask real quick before we end today, why why was it New York? I mean, why did we end there? Was that was that just a place that you thought about for a while? 
I always, when I came there, I always felt at home with the city. It was just more a feeling than uh, something rational. And then I think just my interest really aligned with New York, the literature and the culture, and then the energy and um, and everything New York oozes in charisma. It just like pulled me in and somehow aligned with my, you know how people say relevant to my interests. And that was New York for me always relevant to my interests. You mentioned maybe we'd see you again. Are you thinking a wild card into an event in Germany, maybe, or is it an exhibition? No, no, no. I don't pickleball think... team. No returning pro. Yeah, pickleball no. team. No, I think I will do like an exhibition goodbye farewell match in Germany, and that's it. That's it. Andrea is old. <laughs> In the meantime, you're doing some amazing broadcast work. And also, I do want to say you've always had interests outside of tennis that I know of. I mean, fashion, music, writing. You posted this past week some photos interviewing Jarvis Cocker as well. I mean, yeah, that was so fun. Very cool. The caption was interviewing is my passion. Are we suggesting a podcast? Is this happening next? That was sarcastic. I hate interviewing so much. I don't know how you do it. I get so stressed. Jarvis was amazing. He was so funny and open. And uh, then it's easy. But you know, some people just don't want to talk or don't want to say things or are very um, taciturn. So, um, so it's, it's so nerve wracking. So I don't envy you. It was really it's, it's fun when it goes well, obviously, but it's too nerve wracking for me. But commentating, we'll continue to do that. Yes, we'll see you. Well, I host, I'm not really commentating. I'm hosting a sports show here. So I'm like the presenter of a sports show. And I guess I will still do that. Girls got to make some money. Well, whatever you end up doing, we'll be listening. Andre Pekovich, thank you for taking us on this amazing ride. We will definitely have you uh, another time. I know, I know we could. I mean, we can do a part two. If somebody wants a part two, call me up. I can't thank my friend, the fantastic Andrea Petkovic enough today. Our guest today can be found on Instagram at Andrea Petkovici. That's an I at the end of Petkovic. And on Twitter at Andrea Petkovic. You can order Andrea's book, Between Fame and Honor Lies the Night, everywhere you find your favorite books. I ordered mine off of Amazon Books. You can also visit audible.com and order the audiobook version with Petko reading herself. I mean, who doesn't want that, right? <laughs> While you're on Instagram or Twitter, shoot me a message at John Garica. Let me know who you're a big fan of and who you'd like to hear on an upcoming show. Also, don't forget to follow us at Fantastic Tennis Pod or on Twitter at FantennisPod. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, I definitely appreciate a great review to help keep this show on the air. My name is John Garica, and thank you for listening. This has been fantastic. I love you. Bye. I love you too. See you. Bye. It's so good. Bye. Tschüss.